at Fusion. To those of you in this space, as well as those of you worshiping and connecting with us online, welcome. And now hear the word of the Lord from Psalm 99. The Lord reigns. Let the nations tremble. He sits enthroned between the cherubim. Let the earth shake. Great is the Lord in Zion. He is exalted over all the nations. Let them praise your great and awesome name. He is holy. Amen. I invite you to stand and worship with us. Sorrow and death in my sin, lost without help and no place to begin.
my chains I'm a prisoner no more my shame was ransom he canceled my debt and he called me his friend when death was arrested my life began oh your grace so free washes over displayed on a criminal's cross darkness rejoiced as though heaven had Child forever I am 
Fusion family. It's so good to be worshiping with you this morning, and I'm so honored to be a part of the prayer time. And we welcome you here and uh, beautiful messages in, in music today, wouldn't you say? Thank you. Thank you, Sarah, and thank you for all the gifts that are on this stage and how they bring and lead us into worship every single Sunday. I truly, truly appreciate it, and I know you do too. So will you bow your heads and pray with me, please? Lord, what a privilege to come before you today, knowing that the sweetest time of the day is when we come to you, when we come to pray, because we know that we are talking to the one who loves us the very most. And in our prayers of thanksgiving, we embrace that you, God, our compassionate Father, is expectantly waiting to hear from your children as we come with hearts filled with gratitude as with other as also as whatever's weighing on our hearts and we know there is much we begin with the promises found in psalm 5 where it says in the morning O lord you hear my voice and in the morning i lay my request for you and i wait in expectation and in the evening in peace i will lie down and i will sleep for you alone lord Make me dwell in safety. Father, just as we celebrated receiving your son this Christmas time, may we continue to live in him, be rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as we were taught, 
and overflowing with thankfulness. May our words and our actions and our thoughts be full of praise as we consider the tremendous gift that is Jesus, who came into the world to save us from our sins. And the greatest gift is truly yet to come, that inheritance that awaits all of us, your faithful saints, when we cross the stormy waters of this world and enter our peaceful dwelling that is heaven. As our God of harmony, we pray for a heavenly calm to fill our weary hearts, especially in these challenging times. May your gracious and your patient love unite us all, our immediate family, our Hardaway family, in particular our Fusion family right here today and watching online. We pray for our neighborhoods and our schools and our cities, for our state, our country, and our world. Use us to be your vessels of peace and hope. Quiet our spirits so that we may shine your light in the darkness. And we accept that we all have a lot of light shining to do. We pray for those within our fusion community and our celebration community who are weighed down with care and concern and grief. There's so much going on across this campus. We pray for John as he continues to mourn the passing of his wife, Beth. We lift up Jane and Lee as they mourn the passing of their son-in-law, Adam. And we pray earnestly, too, for Brianna from our celebration community as she's in critical condition at Mercy Hospital at this moment. Lord, ever so tightly hold on to her parents, Derek and Cynthia and the rest of the family, as they are not permitted to be by her side. May our relentless prayers of intercession result in a quiet reassurance and an ultimate healing for Brianna. We pray for those battling cancer. We think of Helene, and we think of Jim, Rhonda, and we think of Sean. Um, they're in the fight, fight for their lives. Lord, for all of these families, we know that their faith is secure, and we give thanks for the strength of family and friends that surround them at this time. Lord, we pray that you heal our land, arrest our fears, strengthen our faith, and through it all, carry us through these troubled waters. And let us remember that we are never more like you, Jesus, than when we pray for others and when we care for others. We give thanks that Pastors Aaron and Bill were able to take some time away to refresh and renew, spending time with precious family. And we pray for them too, as well as JB and Darwin, as we give thanks for their ongoing servant leadership, not only sharing the truth of the gospel, but loving and caring for each one of us day in and day out. As we embark on yet another year, we are filled with gratitude for the ongoing support for those who call Hardawaik their home of community and their home of worship. We acknowledge that we simply cannot do these things in your name, Jesus, without the countless volunteers and the financial support. Thank you. And now for the next few moments, with all that is going on in our world, maybe whatever might be trying to distract us at this time, may it be set aside and in its stead, may your words of promise and truth Fill us with peace and hope, and maybe even some challenges. Even in this season of restlessness, lead us away from fear and discouragement, embracing that in you, Christ Jesus, is our hope and our anchor and our peace. And as was declared centuries ago, still holds true today, a thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices. 
And we pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you, Mary. And good morning, Fusion. Yeah. <laughs> Do you like snow? Do you like snow? Good. They're from Southern California, by the way. They so. are thrilled that you just pointed that out to, to everyone. Yvonne's parents are here from Southern California, and so we are thrilled to have them. And, uh, you know, as, as Mary was just ending her prayer, first of all, if you have not gone to children's uh, uh, worship, kids, young people, you can dismiss... Um, out, out through the door and head that way. Uh, as, as Mary was just closing that prayer, what, what struck me, um, oh, you want to give me a hug? Okay, yeah. Thanks, buddy. I love you. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Wow. I feel like a really good dad all of a sudden. <laughs> I don't know. Notice how I made that about me. That's going to come back in our service, in our sermon, yeah. Anyway, I was just reflecting about how important worship is and this, this discipline, and even as Mary prayed to, to unplug the distractions, to unplug from all these messages that are coming our way and to set, a t- set time aside each week to focus our heart on God and to pour out ourselves in worship and to receive a message of God's grace and, and the gospel of Jesus Christ. I was struck by that. Uh, the other thing, on a lighter note, I, I just found this out at council last month, and some of our council members can attest to this, that, did you know some of our chairs have cushions on them? And they're fantastic. I, feel, I finally got a cushioned chair. Uh, if you want one, sit in the front row, front and center, and you can, no, I'm just kidding. Get here, er, no, anyway, I tease. But uh, it, is, uh, it is a joy to, to be together for worship, and uh, if we haven't had the chance to meet on Pastor JB, I uh, would, would love that opportunity. We are starting off a new series of messages this morning. Uh, we're calling the Scandal of Grace. You can see the cool graphic there with the crown of thorns. There's some triangles ups, upwards and downwards, and there's, anyway, just look at that, and there's some cool uh, messaging in that graphic. But uh, the, mes- the, the series we're calling, it's, it's called the, the Scandal of Grace, our inspiration Inspiration is kind of a companion book that we uh, have some copies available called Scandalous Stories by Price and Sorensen. It's a, it's, it's a short read. Each parable is just a uh, couple of pages, uh, so it's very accessible. If you'd like to follow up each Sunday with some further discussion, we're going to have a discussion group Wednesday nights during community, community night after dinner, 6 o'clock to 7.30, room 20. I'm going to be leading that. Would love for uh, anyone who's interested in for some further study, discussion, but also connection within the body uh, to come and check that out as well. And we'll read a little bit in just a few moments. But a quick word on the parables and by the way, we could have done a whole sermon on just an introduction to the parables. Uh, but one of the things that we want to talk about is oftentimes, I think as Christians, uh, we, 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 we come to the parables with certain um, assumptions and sometimes some misconceptions uh, that either reduce the parables to less than they are uh, or assume certain things that are more than they are, more than they're intended to be. Uh, one quick example is the parables of Jesus Christ are not kind of Jesus' version of like Aesop's fables. Do you remember Aesop's fables? Uh, I just read in Bryce in one of these stories, uh, the, the boy who cried wolf. And of course, that's a story we tell our children to teach them not to lie, right? 
Like there's just a moral lesson. Uh, the parables are not simply that. The parables are not primarily allegorical teaching, an allegorical teaching tool to make complicated things plain and simple. Um, if they might teach a moral lesson. They, they often contain theology and truth, of course. Uh, but Jesus' primary purpose in, in using parables was to serve his greater purpose of ministry. And the message of Jesus' ministry was to proclaim and to reveal the coming kingdom of God. And so that's the primary purpose of Jesus' parables. And, and the kingdom of God shattered expectations. The kingdom of God it was, is backwards and upside down and inside out compared to the world. Oftentimes, Jesus' parables, people would listen to those parables and it would be confusing. Or there'd be like this surprise twist or it would end in the way that they would not expect. And the reason is Jesus is trying to introduce and help people begin to grasp the coming kingdom, which is so different from the kingdoms of this world. Uh, in fact, our book, our companion in the foreword, uh, written by Chad Bird, uh, he, he writes this in a very beautiful, con pretty concise way. I'm just gonna read uh, from this book to kind of maybe inspire you to pick up a copy. But hear this. This comes from the forward page nine. We often hear parables defined as earthly stories with a heavenly meaning, but that's not only too simplistic, it's misleading. To begin with, the parables are not your predictable earthly story where good guys finish first, bad guys finish last, and the dashing hero rides off into the sunset with the beauty queen smiling beside him. Very often in the parables of Jesus, the good guy does not get the girl. The man with the black hat receives a standing ovation, and the unwashed riffraff of society is scooped up from the gutter and plopped down at the head of the king's table with a T-bone steak and a glass of Merlot. These may be earthly stories, but they read more like immoral, morality tales. Second, the parables aren't about a heavenly, otherworldly meaning. Their subject is the kingdom of God. To be sure, but a kingdom packed with dirt and trees and water and bread and wine and truckloads of twisted sinners. The divine kingdom is a dirty kingdom rooted in the stuff of creation. The parables don't point up there to celestial truisms worthy of angelic musings, but down here to the creation infused with the promises of the lamb slain for the foundation of the world, from the foundation of the world. Rather than earthly stories with heavenly meaning, the parables are backwards tales with a cruciform meaning. Luther once said that everything that belonged to God must be crucified. That applies to the parables too. They are crucified stories. The cross helps us understand. Fast forwarding a couple pages, he says this. Here's a good rule of thumb. If you find yourself as the hero of any parable, you're doing it wrong. Now that kind of that spurs the curiosity our hope in this series is that Jesus' parables, what they're intended to do uh, is, is to invite us in so that we can begin dialoguing and exploring uh, the meaning and the reality and living into the reality of the kingdom of God. They're inviting more dialogue, which is why we have this Wednesday night discussion group. I tried to keep that short and not a full sermon. So, a little introduction. We're gonna enter in this morning uh, through one of the parables of Jesus from Luke chapter seven. Jesus tells a very short parable in the context of this event. And then he explains some of its meaning. And so, it's a good one to start because there's an explanation. We're gonna do just that. Luke seven, verses 36 through 50. If you're willing and able, I invite you to stand as we hear God speak to us this morning. It's a way of honoring our God. 
Again, Luke 7 will begin verse 36. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. And here's the parable. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet. But she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the word of the Lord. Spit of God. You may be seeing. Will you join me in prayer? Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that in hearing this account of the life of our Lord Jesus Christ, Lord, we're in a way transported back and we, we imagine what this scene would have been like. Spirit, we pray that as we study, as we've read your word, that you would move in our hearts, that you would teach us truth that you would encourage us where we need to be encouraged, challenge us where we need to be challenged. And in all things, Lord, may we be formed more and more into the likeness of you, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's in your name that we pray all these things. Amen and amen. Back, uh, back when I was in college, which, believe it or not, was over 20 years ago, whew, I went to Hope College right here in the area. Go Hope, yep. If that, I'm not trying to be controversial, but anyway, go Hope. Uh, after I, 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 was in, I was at Hope College and I, I started uh, in a certain tract, about my sophomore year, I felt this call to youth ministry. And I changed my major to, to youth ministry, really a religion major, and I was considering a youth ministry emphasis. Uh, but when I made that switch, I, I started thinking differently about all these electives that I had to take. And so one of the electives I took I thought would be helpful going into youth ministry was a, a psychology course called Developmental Psychology. 
Uh, and developmental psychology is a class on the different stages of development uh, for children uh, from birth to adulthood. And you kind of study the different theories of development and stages of development. And it seemed helpful at the time, and I'm, I'm sure it was. I don't know how much I remembered or retained 20 years later. Uh, but what strikes me is, is now that I'm a parent, uh, I'm living that course, right? I'm, I'm living developmental psychology 101. And really, uh, being a parent's a beautiful thing, uh, but one of the things I'm noticing, that's uh, the two kids that made an appearance up here, Emmeline, who's eight and a half, uh, Bryson, who's four and a half, and don't jip them of that half year, right? Uh, but what I'm experiencing is the differences in development uh, for a four-year-old and an eight-year-old. And, uh, you know, for, like, for example, Bryson up there, the younger one, he's four and a half, and uh, his happiness He's eating a bowl of ice cream right there. His happiness is, is directly correlated uh, to how much sugar he receives, right? Like more candy, he's happier. More ice cream, he's, if he doesn't get candy, uh, he's, he's not happy. Of course, after the candy, that's a whole other story. But anyway, his happiness is all about getting sugar or candy. Uh, what I'm noticing with Emmeline, you know, she's eight and a half, and, uh, and she's at a stage where where, where she's constantly comparing her circumstances to those in her life. And the main person in her life is her brother. And I was kind of refreshing. I, I think in this stage of development, jealousy is something that kids begin to experience at this age. So this is completely normal. But she's comparing her circumstances to her brother. Uh, an example, just from a couple weeks ago, a couple Thursdays ago, uh, we left Nana and Papa's house and we went to Urban Air, uh, this adventure park. That's a picture from Urban Air. Uh, anyway, uh, before we left Nana and Papa's house, Papa had some change in his pocket and he gave uh, Bryson uh, a quarter or something and Emmeline was like, well, hello, I need a quarter, right? So he gave Emmeline a quarter and then they were saying like, well, can you use that? I'm like, well, you really need 50 cents. Anyway, so they both got 50 cents or at least we thought. And so we head to Urban Air. Bryson takes out the change. He actually got nickels. He doesn't know the difference. So he's got 10 cents. I'm like, okay, we're not going to do any of the candy machines. But Emmeline is, notices this, that, that they both had 50 cents in her mind. Well, Bryson in the ball pit at Urban Air, he finds a 50 cent piece. I have a lot of questions about that too, okay? I don't know. Ball pits are kind of gross. I don't know how you lose a half. Anyway, but he found a, 50, a half dollar, like a big half dollar. Well, Emmeline gets wind of this, that, that he had found this half dollar. And she comes to me and she's like, um, I need 50 cents. I'm like, I'm like, what are you talking about? She's like, well, Bryson has more money than me now. I'm like, well, remember, he, got, he only got 10 cents and now you got 50 cents. And now he found, he's like, oh, she's like, okay, well, I need 10 cents. You know, she did the math. Like, it needs to be fair. I need 10 cents. And I'm like, honey, that's, that's not how it works. You know, you can go diving in that ball pit and try to find chains. I'm like, actually, don't do that. Anyway, <laughs> another example was, um, and I don't want to go into too many details, but we were at a situation where so, her behavior didn't warrant her getting a stick of gum. And, uh, and so she asked for gum. I said, oh, no, we didn't, we didn't really do well in this situation, so no gum. Bryson says, well, can I get some gum? And I was like, well, you know, your behavior was just fine. I'm like, sure, buddy, you can have some gum. <laughs> that did not end well. <laughs> Comparing, right? You know, at this stage of development, and it's completely normal for Emmeline to be at this stage of development, right? But we observe, and Emmeline's circumstances, her well-being depends on these circumstances. 
And it depends on comparing her circumstances to her brother. And so in her mind, if things are fair, or a little bit to my advantage, right, I'm good. I'm happy. But the moment things are not fair, and I sense that my brother has got something that I haven't, suddenly I'm not happy. I'm very upset. And again, we can say, well, that's, that's totally normal. Eight-year-old, that's right in that stage of development. You know, that's exactly where she needs to be as she develops and grows up to a young woman. But can we just admit something that how often do we fall into that same trap? We fall in that same trap of comparison. And maybe we're not measuring bubble gum. Maybe we're not measuring the change in our pocket. But what about life circumstances? What about morality and righteousness? And we say to ourselves, well, I'm, I'm, a, pretty, I'm a pretty decent person. You know, at least I'm not like person A. Or I'm a lot better than person B. And we fall into this trap, usually in the subconscious, right? This is the same game that, Fer- that Simon the Pharisee in Luke chapter 7 is playing while he's hosting this dinner, right? He's playing, he's falling into this comparison trap. Simon has people over to his house and as they come in, he's, he's looking around and he's assessing and he's evaluating, he's judging, he's drawing all kinds of co- conclusions, conclusions excuse, excuse me, about those who have come into his home. Simon's comparison, let's talk about that. Let's think about this context once again in uh, Luke chapter 7. Simon invites Jesus over for dinner. This is what we know. A couple of quick notes about this ancient first century dinner party kind of help us understand the context. In the ancient world, like a dinner party like this, these are small towns, not a ton of people. Uh, they, were not, they were not private events. They were not secluded. Like they were not in a home where all the doors are shut and no one knows what's going on. It's kind of open to the public. It's kind of weird for us to think about. But that's the first century. And so there are those who were invited to the dinner, Jesus being one of them, and they had a place at the table. You'll notice that Luke says he was reclining at the table. Well, in the first century, the table would would be just just above the ground. They'd be laying on some cushions, so really laying on some cushions, leaning on their left elbow so that they could eat with their right hand, which is, I'm a left-hander, so that's really unnatural for me to think about. Uh, But this kind of helps us understand the blocking of this, that that she's behind Jesus, but she's at his feet. Okay, that kind of helps us understand that he's, he's leaning back on the table, reclining at a table. So there's those who are invited, they're reclining at the table, but it's also an open dinner. It's kind of this community event and there would be other people who are welcome to come and there'd be people maybe standing along the walls, not at the table, and they'd be engaging with people at the table, maybe engaging in conversation. So the fact that, some, this, that a woman came into this dinner party would not have been all that abnormal or surprising but would would have been shocking and alarming would be the fact that this particular woman came to this dinner party. A woman who we're told lived a sinful life. A woman who this small town knew her sin. We draw all kinds of conclusions. We don't know for sure. Luke doesn't say what her sin is, but uh, it's been concluded and, and assumed that she had a certain profession, Right? So that would have been alarming for her to, to have the audacity to step foot into this dinner party. But then what becomes even more alarming is what she does when she gets there. This woman goes straight to Jesus 
And when she gets to Jesus' feet, something happens. And she has this just emotional experience where she just drops down at his feet and she starts weeping at the feet of Jesus. She drops to the ground and then she begins wiping Jesus' feet, the tears off of his feet with her hair. She has let her hair down. Again, that is something women would not have done in the first century. And then she comes what she was prepared to do because she came carrying this, this, this alabaster jar of expensive perfume, a jar that had to be broken open and she pours this perfume on Jesus' feet. Now this got Simon's attention, right? His antenna are raised. He's, making, he's seeing what's happening. He's making all kinds of assessments and judgments and evaluations, not just about this woman, but about Jesus. Saying to himself, making assumptions. If this, if truly, obviously Jesus is not a prophet because if he was, he would know who's touching him. Well, he's making some assumptions that Jesus doesn't know who's touching him. And he's making assumptions that if he did know, he would have a different response. He's making all kinds of assumptions that are not true about Jesus. But he also makes these, this assumption about this woman. He knows her sin. And, and calling her in his mind a sinner is designed to contrast her life to his own. He's comparing. Notice, notice quickly with me that Simon's immediate response is not one of grace. Right? It's not a gracious response because he could have seen her come in and be like, whoa, what, what is she doing here? Why, why is she here? Why is she crying? Why is she experiencing all this emotion? Why, why did she bring this perfume? What's, what's going on in her heart to lead her to respond this way to this particular man, Jesus, who I've been hearing about and I'm trying to figure out a little bit about him? It's not a gracious assumption. It's she is a sinner. He cannot help but label her for who he believes her to be, who she is. She is a sinner, a label given to her by those who obviously do not feel the same about themselves. She's a sinner is what Simon is saying and the assumption that in his mind is she's a sinner and I'm not. She's a sinner and I'm a saint. And this is where in Simon's mind this comparison inevitably leads. Comparison is is a deadly trap. Comparison is a deadly trap. Simon's posture of assessing, measuring, and comparing leads to placing people on this measuring stick or a scale where you have, you have sinners and you have saints, you have heroes and zeros, good guys, bad guys, winners and losers, those who are successful, those who are failures. That's where comparison leads. When we compare ourselves to others, there's two possible outcomes. When we compare ourselves to others, we either feel superior, right? Because we're higher up on this measuring stick, this arbitrary scale. We are higher up and so we feel superior and puffed up. Or on the flip side, we see them, we're comparing and we feel lower. We feel inferior to the person we're comparing ourselves. No matter how you slice it, comparison is a deadly trap. As I was thinking about this, it's kind of like, it's kind of like being graded on a curve. Do they still do that in school? You guys get graded on a curve ever? Do you know what I'm talking about? Graded on a curve where usually it happens when everyone kind of bombs an exam. And so the teacher's like, well, graded on a curve. And so, you know, whoever had the highest, that's kind of the high. So anyway, your, your grade is determined by how well other people did in your class. And so if you think about it, when you're graded on a curve, what you're really hoping for is that really smart person 
just kind of had an off day in your class, right? Because if they got a little lower grade, then that's going to bump your grade up. Your grade is determined by the success or failure of those around you, your classmates. This comparison is, is kind of a similar thing. Where our well-being, right, is determined by the well-being and circumstances of others. And it just becomes this deadly trap. And so here's the question. Have you ever been there? Have you ever fallen into this trap of, of comparison? Maybe not vocally, maybe not out loud, but maybe like Simon to ourselves, subconsciously, feeling a little bit justified by someone else's failure, right? Kind of thinking to yourself, well, you know, if, if my coworker or that classmate, you know, they kind of screw up, that, that might make me look a little better, right? If I'm honest, you know, it's just an internal dialogue. Or how about this, parents, right? This is where my little comment comes back to haunt me, right? We compare our kids' behavior to other kids' behavior. You're in Target and that kid's having the meltdown. You're like, my kid's being quiet. He's glued to a screen, but he's being quiet, right? <laughs> right? And that's not really about the kids. That's more about us. It's about us as parents. Or we're reading the news. We're reading about a different atrocities or horrible circumstances and people making horrible choices. And it makes us feel just a little bit better because I can say, well, at least I'm not like that person. Or on the flip side, we play that comparison game. And we look at other people's lives. We look at what other people are doing and we begin to feel horrible or guilty about our own circumstances. We, we see that family who's taken that amazing vacation and we suddenly start thinking, well, man, I, I wish I could provide that vacation for my kids. Or we see these pictures on social media and they're all happy and they're looking at each other like, oh, we're just laughing all the time, Right? You know, like, oh, my, my family, we're, we're fighting all the time right now. It's been a really tough season. And of course, Instagram, all these things feed this lie because we curate these images on social media. Like, none of that's real. But we play this comparison game and we either feel superior or we feel despair. Comparison is a trap. Either I'm going to feel superior or inferior. It's just a trap, a deadly trap at that. And Simon's playing that game. And while Simon's playing that game, he's thinking this to himself, and Jesus responds. Now imagine that for a moment, right? You're just having this thought, and Jesus responds to you. Jesus responds, interrupts, interjects Simon's thoughts, and shares a parable, starting with verse 40. Remember this parable, again, all the parables are told in a specific context, and so the intent is to do something within the content of this story. Jesus' intent is to shatter Simon's understanding of the world, right? Pushing against Simon's assumptions and assessments because Simon is operating by a certain paradigm. Here's the paradigm. Simon's assumption, Simon's assessment is that he is better than this woman. She's a sinner. The assumption is he's not a sinner, right? He, he, his assumption is he is better than her. She's a sinner. Simon, I'm not. She's maybe a prostitute. Simon, I'm a Pharisee. Right? She is looked down on. She is shamed in her society. Simon, I am looked up upon. She's committed sins that we all know about in this community. And I've lived a fairly righteous life, Simon's thinking. 
But then Jesus shares this parable to kind of push against that paradigm. Shares a parable about a lender and two debtors. It's obvious to Simon who is who in this parable, right? The lender is God. There's a big debtor, someone who has this large debt. Then there's someone who has a smaller debt. In Simon's mind, it's clear. The woman has the large debt. He has the small debt. Jesus goes on to share this parable. Both of them are forgiven of their debt. And then Jesus asks Simon, well, who do you suppose will love the lender more? Notice Simon's reluctance. Well, I suppose (laughs) the one who had the greater debt forgiven. Jesus says, you've answered correctly. In Simon's mind, I suppose it would be this woman who would love more. And then Jesus goes on to to explain how she has loved more because she is offering all the, the signs of hospitality in the first century that Simon should have offered to Jesus. She has offered them in this display that has horrified all the members of the, the dinner party. Jesus flips the paradigm on its head to Simon, you are not better than this woman. You, your paradigm's off. You are not better than this woman. Now here's the temptation. Here's the temptation for many of us reading this in our modern context. What we want to do is we want to just switch it up. We want to conclude that what Jesus is saying is, is we, just need to turn, we just need to flip that equation around. We want to say the bigger debtor, the big debtor, is, is the hero here, right? They understand forgiveness of debt, and therefore they have this greater capacity of, to love. That's what Jesus is saying, that this, this woman is the victim of this town's sin, and, and we should celebrate her. She's the hero, and we're, we're tempted to make Simon to just be this villain. Surely that's what Jesus is communicating, right? But there's a problem with that. Because what are we doing with this modern paradigm, this temptation? It's just another form of comparison. It's just in the opposite direction. It's another form of comparison based on different standards. And the problem with that is it raises all kinds of other questions in our mind if this paradigm is true. We begin to think, well, would I love more if I made more mistakes? Like, do I need to go out and sin more? so that I can love more? Is that what Jesus is saying? Is Jesus saying that actually my obedience and my faithfulness is, is, a, is like a handicap for future ministry because I don't have the capacity to love? Is that what Jesus is saying? And we actually hear this a little bit. I've done this. Sharing testimonies. You ever have that? Like, share, share your story. Share your story of faith. And sometimes, like, I've done this myself. We apologize We say, well, I I can share my story. It's kind of a boring one. It's not very exciting. I grew up in the church my whole life. There was never a day I didn't know the name of Jesus. Like, why am I apologizing for that? That's a beautiful testimony. Jesus is is not simply switching the paradigm. Jesus' intent in this is to shatter Simon's assumption, yes, but there's another assumption that Simon makes that Jesus is actually shattering as well. Simon is assuming that he is the small debtor. It's not true. We're all big debtors. Jesus' paradigm is is to say, Simon, you and this woman are the same. You both have debts that you cannot repay. Apart from the grace 
of the lender. Notice in Jesus' parable, he ties these two debtors together. Two people owed money. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, and he forgave the debts of both. Both debtors could not pay back their debts. Both debtors faced the same consequences of unpaid debts. Simon, that is what you're missing. Simon is so busy counting and comparing the debts, just like my eight-year-old daughter counting and comparing pocket change with her brother. And in the process of this comparing, he misses it. He misses it. He misses the truth that we all have an unpayable debt. Simon and this woman are the same with a huge debt that neither of them can pay back. Their only hope is the grace and forgiveness of the Lord. And he misses one other thing. The other thing he misses is that Simon is missing the truth that the one who can forgive that debt is sitting at his dinner table. He's right there in his home. Jesus Christ is sitting at his dinner table. And in his striving to justify himself, to prove his own righteousness, which he's doing by comparing himself to others, again, privately in his heart, but in this comparison, in this self-justifying, in this self-righteousness, it leads him to miss Jesus who is sitting right there in his house. And that's what this deadly trap of comparison does when we're constantly looking around at others around us. We so often miss to look at the one who can actually do something about our life and the debt that we can't repay. We're so busy looking around that we don't look up at Jesus Christ himself. And friends, that's the lesson we can learn from this woman and her response. There's a lot we don't know about this woman. But clearly, clearly the one thing we do know and we cannot deny is that in this moment she was not going to miss out on Jesus. There was nothing stopping her from getting to where Jesus was sitting. And her life and her response testifies and models something for us. And we could sum it up in love. This woman's love. Notice again, Luke never names the specifics of her sinful life. We make assumptions about what her sin was, and those assumptions could very well be true. But Luke never mentions the specifics. And I have a suspicion that that's intentional. Because it doesn't matter what our sin is. The response is the same. And she models it. Notice this woman, she recognized her own sin before she even came to the party. She recognized her own sin. When she comes into this party, she resists any temptation at comparison and she has a singular focus which is on Jesus and it led her to love and service. Quickly, let's just talk about those kind of things, quickly. She recognized her own sin. Before she stepped into that dinner party, this woman recognized her own sin, which is the only reason she came to that dinner party in the first place. She turned and repented from that sin. Maybe because she had heard about this Jesus. She, maybe she even heard him teach earlier. Somehow, though, she had connected Jesus with the work of God in her life and her heart, and so she comes in response to anoint Jesus' feet with perfume. 
And at the very sight of him, she's overcome with the emotion of this grace in his presence and begins weeping and kissing and wiping his feet with her hair. Notice what Jesus says to Simon about her in verse 46. He says, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. There's some subtlety in the Greek. Here's what it is. The word forgiven here is in the perfect tense. I didn't really learn much about grammar until I took Greek class. But it's in the perfect tense, the indicative mood. Here's the definition of that tense in like a Greek lexicon or a Greek uh, textbook. The perfect tense means this. It means the action was completed in the past. Your sins have been forgiven. But its effects are felt in the present. An action where the action was completed in the past, she's been forgiven, but its effects are felt in the present. I mean, this woman is, I mean, is like a shining example of the perfect tense, right? She's been forgiven, but she's experiencing the effects here in the present. She came to this party forgiven already, recognizing her own sin, which is why she was uninterested in comparison. She had, no, she had no interest in comparison. She enters unconcerned with the sin or righteousness of the others at this dinner. Let's assume that her profession is what we assume her profession to, me, to be. If that's true, she has all kinds of secrets and indiscretions of the people in that town. Likely many of them are sitting around that table. Doesn't say a word. Not concerned with it. Or on the flip side, maybe she knows her place and she's filled with, sh- she's not concerned that they are of higher status. She is going to the feet of Jesus. She resists any urge to compare. She doesn't seem to care. All she cares about is getting to Jesus. Her singular focus was getting to Jesus. And when she gets to Jesus, she receives this gift of grace. She seems to know that when she gets to Jesus, she would be received in with a warm, hospitable welcome, that there would be grace, that there would be welcome. She meets Jesus, and this response of love and service flows from her being. And in love and scandalous grace, what does Jesus say to her? Your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This woman becomes, her response is a model for us. Here's the invitation for us today. Jesus. There's an invitation today to receive the same scandalous grace that this woman received. Maybe you're, you're sitting here today and you've fallen into the, the trap of comparison. Like Simon or, or like an eight-year-old child, you're counting the change, measuring the debts, comparing what others have, who others are, what others have done, etc., etc. And you've found that this, this comparison is like a roller coaster ride of ups and downs where my well-being is always dependent upon the behavior, status, righteousness, or unrighteousness of others. 
And maybe for you, that roller coaster has, has led you to feel like you have it all figured out, kind of like Simon. That you're doing just fine. Or maybe that roller coaster has led you to feel like a failure, filled with self-doubt or despair. Friends, the truth of God this morning is that we are all big debtors. That none of us can do a thing to repay the debt of our own sin, but the good news is Jesus can and Jesus already has. 2,000 years ago, our Lord Jesus went to a cross, gave his life, and with it our sin and the weight of that sin and death was buried with him. We were raised to new life when Jesus rose again three days later. So whether this morning you feel like one and God's convicting you that you've, you've been feeling justified, or maybe you're hearing the, the warm voice of, of our Lord Jesus because you've felt d- despair and judged and looked down on, Whatever our place, notice there was a place for both Simon and this woman in the presence of Jesus. May we focus our hearts on him. May we receive Christ's scandalous grace as we remember how great is his love and then may we respond in love and service of him and to others in our world. Friends, this is the scandal of the grace of God. Let's pray and thank our Lord for this gift. Will you join me? Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you. We thank you for these parables. We thank you for your scripture, which invites us to explore, invites us to dialogue, invites us to listen to your spirit as we we consider the kingdom of God, as we consider this scandalous and reckless grace of our loving God who sent his son, Jesus Christ, to be a gift of grace. Who sent his son, Jesus Christ, to to live a life, to face all the temptation, to face all the brokenness of this world so that we might have hope. That we might have hope in the promise of forgiveness and life in him, both now and forevermore. Lord, thank you for reminding us of this grace. Thank you, Lord, for reminding us that because of, Lord Jesus, what you have done, we can say it is well with our soul. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. I invite you to stand and worship with us.
that song is a favorite. I could say that, right? Um, this comparison is exhausting. Whether you're, you're seeing everyone and, and feeling despair or you're always trying to be good enough. Life in this world is exhausting because of the effects and the impact of sin and, and we've, we've experienced that. But the good news of the gospel are the words that we just sang. That in Jesus, with Jesus, it is well. It's good news. I don't know how to transition from that. But go and receive God's blessing. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all now and forevermore. Amen. Some donuts over there. If you need a book, I haven't brought them out yet, so I'll go grab some books. So. So take this word